Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is the number one book podcast now in the world. And we talk about, we talk with authors who write books about TV, Hollywood, uh, entertainment, and really anybody who strikes our fancy. And tonight I'm talking with Gene Popa. He has a new book out. It's called British Invasion 64, The Year That Changed Rock and Roll Forever. Gene, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. Thank you so much, Jim. Happy to be here. The British Invasion of 1964, and I remember I was a mere child, and I remember hearing in Louisville on a on a old AM station, and the uh, and the DJ played a song called "She Loves You" mm. by this group that nobody really had heard of yet. No. Okay, and um, and it was before. Ed Sullivan, it was before the, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And they played it, and afterwards the DJ came on the air and went, well, it's a hit over there in England. I don't know how they're going to do here in America, though. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so this, they, they didn't know that, that this small little group called the Beatles, uh, they, may, they may have had some talent, didn't they? Just a bit. <laughs> I would say uh, talent all a proportion of their origins. True, true, very true. Now, now, for those of you who are not old enough to remember this time, um, you have to remember that 1963, the, the end of 1963, and you, you cover this in your book too, is that America was reeling from the death of John F. Kennedy. Um, rock and roll had really kind of hit a, Hit a, uh, I want to say it had become commercialized. It was it was safe for most audiences. It had been tamed. It had been what? Tamed. Pained. They had, they had put the shackles on it and cracked the whip, and by and large, rock and roll was acceptable to America's parents at last. Right. I mean, main, because mainly it's like it was a white artist. Um, if you heard a, you didn't hear black music on white music on white radio stations, um, and, and there was no edge. I mean, back in the back in the early days of rock and roll in the fifties, you had Chuck Berry and and uh, <laughs> excuse me, um, and uh, well, Chuck Berry and Little Richard, Elvis was a rebel. You know, he, you know, it was a, it was really cutting edge music, changing things, wasn't it? It uh, rock and roll in the fifties is so different from what it was just a few years after that. Uh, and in the fifties, it was very much a rebel music, and the record labels that were putting it out there were these small, largely fly-by-night labels that, you know, they only did rock and roll because that's what was selling, and they needed the money. The big major labels didn't much care for rock and roll. Once. Right, once rock started to establish itself, the major labels got involved, and that's when they started polishing off some of the rough edges. Yeah, because, I mean, you, I think you cover in your book that uh, Sun Records, they had the sound, uh, the uh, slapback sound. Yes. You know, and RC when R, and they had Elvis Presley. Uh, Sam Phillips had Elvis Presley, and then when he sold Elvis Presley's uh, recording rights to RCA, RCA couldn't duplicate it. No, they wanted to having Elvis stand in a hallway that had natural echoes and sing there. Yeah, and that's and so that was something. And 
like you said, even Elvis, well, let's talk about as it progressed into the late 50s, 1959, rock and roll had really lost its way because Elvis was in the army. Um, Chuck Berry had had trans was in jail transporting a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. Yes. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis had just married his 13 year old cousin. Um, and he was persona non grata. Um, little Richard had turned to religion and wasn't recording. And Chuck Berry, I'm sorry, not Chuck Berry. Um, buddy Holly died in a plane crash. Yes. Uh, and that was so crazy. what's that? It was devastating. All of oh. these hits that rock and roll took in such a short span of time. Um, it's amazing that anything we recognize as rock came out of that. See, and, and I remember having a, a professor saying that the only group that saved rock and roll was the Beach Boys. Now, I kind of disagree with that. And I think I think in reading your book, you kind of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you point out that there was a lot more going on than just the Beach Boys. Oh, absolutely. We, so many people consider that period from 1959 through 1963 as the era when rock and roll was dead. But just look at it. Uh, you had rhythm and blues. Ray Charles was coming out. James Brown. You had Motown. You had Stax. Uh, you had, uh, you know, the Beach Boys and the Surf Sound, which on the one hand was a little vanilla, but on the other had some great musical undertones and laid a basis for some great rock and roll afterwards. So rock wasn't dead, but it just wasn't getting the kind of attention it had before. The, the thrust of the radio industry and the record labels were for the teen idols. So we had a lot of Frankie Avalon and Fabian and Bobby Rydell and uh, even somebody like Ricky Nelson who occasionally would put out some really good tunes, just as often put out some songs that were um, kind of lightweight. <laughs> kind of like Hello Mary Lou. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'd actually put Hello Mary Lou just on the side of the line of a pretty good rock song but some of his other stuff is more in the range of the pet boom side oh most definitely yes well he was safe on tv you know exactly. he was... and he had a you know before the monkeys had a weekly tv show you had rick nelson being on his family show every week and that sold millions of records for him exactly now come 1960 the end of 1963 america is suffers another devastating blow with the assassination of john f kennedy and you know, the youth of America looked looked to uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, they kind of related to him, didn't they? They did. He promised new frontiers. And you had this entire generation of Americans, the largest generation of teenagers in world history, looking to press the boundaries of their world. And now you had this young president saying, we're going to go to the moon. You know, we're going to knock down uh, racial barriers. There's nothing we can't accomplish. And then he's cut down and they're suddenly left feeling, what is there for us? Who, who can give us our next message of what we should do? And suddenly over and, and suddenly, I don't want to say suddenly because it didn't happen overnight, but, oh. but over in England, there was a small quartet who uh, was making waves as early as I believe the summer of 1963. Yes. You know, and um, they had talking about the Beatles, of course, and they are they actually came on the scene in England, I believe, in the summer of 1963, didn't they? 
actually their first single came out in the autumn of 62. Autumn, okay. Love Me Do. And that was a, uh, it was a top 40 hit in Britain, but it wasn't a major hit. But yeah, in the spring and summer of, of 63, the Beatles really exploded in the UK and, and then across Europe as well. You know, I didn't realize that they that the first Lennon and McCartney song to hit the American charts wasn't done by the Beatles. It was done by uh, Del Shannon. That's very true. He uh, was touring in England. And, of course, you couldn't turn on the radio in England without hearing the Beatles. And their hit at that time was For Me to You. Del Shannon thought, that's a catchy song. I think I'll do a cover of it. And uh, he did. And he put it out in 1963. And it, it just barely kind of made it into the top 100. It wasn't a big hit. But it was the first time the names Lennon and McCartney won their way up on the charts in America. That's <laughs> amazing. And, but now... A man named Ed Sullivan was over. Uh, he liked to tell the story that he was over in England. He saw the he saw the the teenagers' reaction at the airport, and immediately said, "I want this group on my TV show." But it wasn't really all that that simple, was it? No, he was in England in October of 1963, and he was at Heathrow Airport, ready to depart back home for America, when the Beatles returned from a, a concert tour in Europe. And there were hundreds of teenage girls screaming for them. And um, as Sullivan would tell the story, he turned to a airline official and realizing that the British prime minister was departing from the airport that day, he assumed the kids were there to scream for him. And he expressed amazement that the prime minister had such a strong youth following. And, and the uh, executive said, oh no, those girls are for the Beatles. And Sullivan said, what the hell are the Beatles? <laughs> now that's a great story. And it really plays into the mythology of the Beatles perfectly. And Sullivan loved to tell that story for the rest of his life. But the truth is, he was at the airport. He did see the girls screaming. He did see the Beatles arrive. But he had already booked the band on his show for three consecutive appearances the following February. Um, and Sullivan left nothing to chance. He was always looking for somebody who would draw eyeballs to the TV screen. And when his um, he had an agent in London who would Pull him into British acts that he liked to put on a show. Sullivan loved British comedians, so he was always putting them on the air. But this agent told him, there's a band here who's just selling millions of records, and, and the kids are screaming for them, and their record label really thinks they're going to break big in America very soon. Sullivan thought, well, if they're going to break big in America inevitably, why shouldn't I be the one to get credit for that? So he booked them for a show without ever actually having heard the Beatles, but he just had faith that everyone was right and that they were going to be big. And it's amazing that, that you know, he, that is really taking a chance because, as you say in your book, British rock and rollers did not succeed in no. the USA. No, it, there would be rare instances. Uh, Laurie London in the 50s went to number one with a Negro spiritual. Uh, he's got the whole world in his hands. And then the Tornadoes had their song Telstar. And there were a few other hits, but none of these artists had lasting success in America. They'd have their hit and they'd disappear. Um, if anyone from Britain should have been a hit in America, it should have been Cliff Richard. Right. Having number one hits in Britain since 1959. And he's still a major star in Britain to this day. He still has hits on the charts. Um, he could barely break into the top 100 in the U.S. He got a couple of minor top 40 hits through the years. Um, he had a couple of appearances on the Ed Sullivan show. And... Nothing would break him through in America. And it's one of the great mysteries. I don't understand why, because he had some great stuff. Well, it, it also wasn't 
also, it looked like from reading your book, the American uh, TV people did not know how to treat British uh, rock and rollers. I mean, I remember one, was it Cliff Richard? They made him dress up like in a, uh, what was it, a, a straw hat and sing uh, sing old First standards. Sullivan. Ed yeah. Sullivan ran a show with an iron fist. He told you what songs you're going to perform. And when Cliff and his band, The Shadows, arrived in New York, uh, Ed's producer told the band, uh, this is the song you're going to do. It's a song you had performed in uh, a movie you did. Um, and it was a novelty song, a, a vaudeville style song called What Do You Know We Got a Show? And Cliff protested. He said, that's not my style. That was just a little fluke we did in the movie, but that's not what we are. And they handed him a straw hat and a cane and said, well, that's who you're going to be on the CBS network on Sunday. And if you don't like it, you can go back home to London right now. Oh, gosh. And see, and that's, that's the thing is that he really didn't know – it, they don't know how to handle the rock and rollers. It's it's mainly, and even, well, even the Beatles, when they first came over, and a lot of people don't realize this, is that they did not have success at first. Um, oh. EMI, EMI uh, over in UK, uh, I guess it was it was Capital here in America, that Capital passed on them. Yes. A lot of people don't realize EMI owned Capital Records. They had bought 90% of them in the 1950s. But, Part of the deal was that Capital had autonomy, and they could pick and choose who they would record. And when EMI offered them the Beatles in early 63, uh, Capital said, no, thanks. And to be fair, the label executives, uh, Alan Livingstone and Dave Dexter, were jazz guys. They didn't really know rock and roll. You know, they had Eddie Cochran in the 50s, and they were just starting to have a little success with the Beach Boys at that point. But other than that, they were all about Nat King Cole and Peggy Lee. So wow. <laughs> rock and roll was not their thing. So EMI shopped the Beatles around and they went to all the other major labels in America. And for some unfathomable reason, nobody heard the greatness of the Beatles and everyone passed on them. I think I heard at some point 23 labels turned them down or something along those lines. I would not be at all surprised because the Beatles eventually landed at VJ. Yes, VJ Records. That's a small independent R&B label out of Chicago that was having um, crossover success with the Four Seasons, but that was really their only successful white act. Everything else they did was R&B. Um, but finally, the EMI got them to agree to release the Beatles records, and uh, they put out Please Please Me as a single, and it managed to be a minor top 40 hit in local Chicago radio. Matter of fact, a DJ in Chicago named Dick Biondi, who just sadly passed away last week, was the first DJ in America to play the Beatles. Uh, but none of the follow-ups hit. And the financial okay. difficulties. So EMI took the contract away from them because they weren't paying the royalties to EMI. Yeah, and I heard, I remember uh, there was, I believe, Swan Records was another one that the Beatles were on early. Swan came next. And they were an even smaller label. They were out of Philadelphia, and they were literally just a local label. Uh, one of their investors was Dick Clark. That was the best thing they had going for them. And Dick Clark agreed to play She Loves You on his American Bandstand show. And he did, and it didn't produce the slightest ripple. Yeah, no it flopped. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it got some airplay, and it, it actually was a minor hit in Los Angeles. But again... It wasn't a breakthrough, and Swan was a small label that really couldn't pay its royalties. I remember so Paul, point. I remember Paul McCartney on the uh, on the, I think it was the uh, 
anthology TV series that, that ABC did. Paul McCartney said, uh, love me, do flop. Please, please me flop. All my love and flop. Um, from me to you flop. And then came, I want to hold your hand. Yes. Um, at that point, there were a couple of different factors that were happening that were changing the Beatles' favor. One was that, first of all, they had uh, the deal to appear on the Sullivan Show for three weeks, which was major in America. If you can get that showcase, you had a much better opportunity of interesting the major labels. Um, the song they recorded was their next single, I Want to Hold Your Hand. The Beatles and their producer, George Martin, specifically tried to make it as American-sounding as possible. You know, with the beat and the way they mixed the song to sound great over an AM car radio, uh, they were very smart about that. And at that point, EMI decided, well, autonomy is all well and good, but now we're going to start tugging on the leash and telling Capital, you can't say no anymore. You have to sign these boys. And at that point, uh, Capital said, not only will we sign them, but we actually can hear it now. We hear this song. It was a hit. <laughs> We're going to invest an unprecedented $50,000 in advertising to push the Beatles, which, I mean, just simply wasn't done in rock and roll back then. Yeah, we think we think these guys may have some talent, eh? you know. <laughs> and, you know, if they could only gotten one big hit out of the Beatles, that $50,000 would have been paid off. So they obviously were gambling that we think this is going to be the hit. You know, you mentioned how they, they signed them. I didn't, and from reading your book, I did not realize the Beatles really. They didn't make a lot of money from the uh, from the record sales. No one did. Uh, the record industry then, and sadly, mostly now, is skewed in the favor of the companies. Uh, artists receive pennies on the dollar from what is sold, and before they even see that, there's a lot of expenses that are built into uh, recording deals that they have to pay off first. So the Beatles were making, uh, you know, a penny a record. So figure they had to split that four ways. And that was after they paid their manager, Brian Epstein, his 25% commission. So even though the Beatles sold 25 million records in America in 64, they were not getting rich from record sales. Yeah, it was a touring that, that they had to do to make to really make any money, right? Because they and made no, they made no money off the, uh, off the Beatle paraphernalia either. They made very little off of that. Uh, their manager, unfortunately, did not make very good deals for the band. He was more interested in just getting the materials out there to promote the group as opposed to making a really good wage from it. And, of course, there was an awful lot of bootleg material that they saw nothing from. Yeah. But, yeah, touring but, was yeah. a lifeblood of any musician. Uh, records were great. Everyone wanted to have a hit. They wanted to hear themselves on the radio. But records were considered to be uh, promotion to get people to buy tickets to go see them in concert. You know, and after the beat, now the Beatles opens the door. Beatles open the door, um, but and then DC uh, DC five, Dave Clark five. Well, you were wrong, DC five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember this. I can still remember the the newspapers, the uh, uh, teen newspapers, Beatles versus DC five, because that's how big the Dave Clark five were. Yes, yes, they they were marketed right from the start as the band that was going to topple the Beatles. And yeah. in Britain at first, it seemed almost likely. They were having number one hits, and they had just the same amount of mania the Beatles were having. But in America, it was a little different. Yeah, and I think the other thing that struck me about Beatles compared to DC5 is that the, the Beatles spurred a lot of 
novelty records too. I mean, yes, even even like uh, Cher, even under her original name, Billy Joe. Uh, yeah, she, um, she worked on the name Bonnie Joe Mason. Bobby Joe Mason, yes, yes. And uh, there was another artist that released a song under the name the Photo Four Five. Photo Four was no Photo Five Four. It's hard to remember. <laughs> That was the name of the minuscule record label that put out the record. And actually, the artist was uh, a very young Harry Nielsen. My gosh. <laughs> Sharon, Harry Nielsen uh, doing novelty records. That, that almost boggles the mind right there. Yeah, I don't think either of those records wound up on their greatest hits album. <laughs> you can never tell with the, with, the, with the streaming and everything going on nowadays. I'm sure there are copies out there somewhere. There, um, there were dozens of artists who suddenly put out records trying to capitalize on the Beatles uh, in the wake of that first visit in February of 64. It became a cottage industry and, and lucrative for some. Several made it to the top 40. That's true. They did. I mean, and then they had, a, but like you said, the, the Dave Clark Five comes in, uh, Rolling Stones. I mean, they, they were marketed as the next Beatles. I mean, they even had somebody pay the, but 500 girls at the airport screaming, screaming like the Beatles. The Rolling Stones uh, had a very interesting manager named Andrew Luke Oldham, who, who kind of got his start thanks to the spurring from the Beatles, who knew him and he'd done some work for them. And they had steered him towards the Stones and said, you want to look into managing this band? Because the Stones were a very hot club act in London at the time, and the Beatles loved to go see their show. Uh, and uh, Oldham was, uh, he was tenacious. He would do whatever it took to get the stones over and that included hiring girls to greet them at the airport so that the press would report that they had a an arrival similar to what the beatles got uh, he took out an ad in trade magazines uh, an anonymous ad saying just watch the rolling stones knock off the beatles <laughs> and the beatles thought this was all hilarious and they encouraged him. they they there was no sense of rivalry with the stones at all well they were friends weren't they i mean they were they they were friends. Uh, there's a, a great instance where um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were walking down the street in London, and they bumped into John Lennon and Paul McCartney and were chatting. And John said, you know what, Paul and I have been working on a song. I think it'd be great for you guys. So the four of them repaired to a nearby pub, and John and Paul finished writing out, um, I Want to Be Your Man. And they gave it to the Stones, and that was their next hit single. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> hardly hardly uh, rivals in the, uh, in the eyes of each other. Now... But, you know, another thing that happened after the British invasion was that there, there was an American response, of course. I mean, had to have an American come back. You know, can't have all these British people influencing American girls. You know, <laughs> all those long hairs. Yeah, all the long hairs. You know, <laughs> I'm just, you know, but the American response was, like you said in your book, first, more of the same. Dean Martin um Dean Martin, who really, I guess, loved the Rolling Stones on the on that TV show. <laughs> that, <laughs> but um, he comes out with "Everybody Loves Somebody" sometime, and knocks the Beatles off in number one. Mm -hmm. uh, you had Louis Armstrong with "Hello Dolly." Yep, also number one hit. Also number one. So I mean, there was there was, you know, like you say in your book. A lot of people think rock and roll in 1964 pushed the old style away right away. But that's not true. I mean, they 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 still had their fans, didn't they? Oh, they did. And it, it should be noted that a lot of the artists who ceased having hits in 64 and after may not have had hits, even if the Beatles and the other Brit bands hadn't come over. That's just the, the nature of, of popular music. 
you have some hits and very few artists last a very long time. Uh, just so happened that a number kind of fell off and disappeared concurrent with the arrival of the Brits. So the, the British kind of get the, the credit or the blame for driving them off. But, uh, you know, the, the initial response in America from the recording industry was more of the same. For one thing, they didn't know if this whole uh, British mania was going to last. It could, it could be just a fad that fades away by the summertime. So why should they retool anything? So they kept giving us what they'd always been giving us, and that included middle-of-the-road artists like Dean and, and Armstrong and Frank Sinatra and Nancy Cole had hits that summer. Um, but as the summer wore on, they saw that the Brits weren't going away. In fact, they were getting stronger. So that's when the American recording industry said, we've got to come up with an actual response. Otherwise, we're going to get completely swamped. Yeah, even and even at the point where, like, the Beatles at one point early uh, in 64 held all five positions on, I believe it was billboards. Yes. Uh, uh, and... And that was due because of the of the different record labels out there. Who, yes, the that was actually on. three different labels that they were on at that time. And <laughs> as I said, everybody was flooding the market with anything Beatle-related, uh, Beatle-adjacent. Uh, there were hits being put out um, by Tony Sheridan. The Beatles had backed him in Hamburg in 1961. And, of course, the records are now being marketed in America as the Beatles. <laughs> And even now, I mean, let's, I'm going to flash forward here. Even now, 60 years, almost 60 years after the first British invasion, you have Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr getting ready to release a Beatles song. Yes. yes. And, and it's going to go to, I mean, I know it's going to go to number one. Because, I mean, just the mere fact, all you have to do is say, this is a new Beatles song. And boom. It's gonna it's gonna be a hit, and and if as I don't no one really knows the full details of the recording, but apparently there are uh, recorded contributions from George Harrison and John Lennon as part of the song, so it will be all four Beatles playing on it in some capacity. So yes, people are gonna want to listen to that and buy it. Yeah, and you know it may even spur uh, like I remember when Anthology came out, you had free uh, free as a bird. That went to number one. I mean, so it's still the drawing power is still there in the British invasion, even to this day. Well, nostalgia is a powerful thing. And when you couple that with a band whose music kind of seems timeless, they're going to be selling Beatles records long after we're all gone. Wow. Well, I tell you what, the author's name is Gene Popa, and the book is British Invasion 64, The Year That Changed Rock and Roll Forever. Gene, thank you for being on Lights Camera Author tonight. Thank you so much, Jim. I really enjoyed it.